0: So, this is, this is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. Nice. And today and, uh, we are joined by uh, two fine individuals here Doug and Brian of Finance Boston. Want to guys introduce yourself, guys?
1: How are we doing, guys? Yeah, my name is Doug Landry. I'm a partner here at Finance Boston. Been doing finance for commercial real estate for about 15 years now. I sound very old when I say that.
2: Um, Brian, I'm a associate at finance Boston, a bit younger than Doug. So doing this for eight years.
1: Who can lift more at the CrossFit studio?
2: Come on. We
1: haven't tested it out yet, but my guess is Brian. I'm more like glory muscles and upper body. <laughs> so Brian's Doug, got the firm base. Doug's got
2: the cardio.
3: <laughs> Brian, do you have a, do you have the home gym going? I think I saw something on IG of you like deadlifting a, a truck or something in your driveway.
2: Yeah, it's a basement gym, but it's good. It worked. Yeah, um, particularly these days. Yeah.
3: It's awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I know we've been talking about doing this episode for a while now. and I know you guys just worked on a deal with Dan and Ray that was super successful. So I think we got a lot of good content to cover. And uh, you know, frankly, we get a, a lot of questions uh, about debt brokerage. I think it's obviously one of the most important parts of the uh, development business is, is getting the capital together. Why don't we start with just some of the basics uh, if we could lay out, explain to us, Brian, just like what is it meant when someone says uh, assembling the capital stack?
2: Yeah, so we go in from the start and first we um, we ascertain what the total project cost is. So that's your acquisition, hard costs plus soft costs. And then capital stack is your debt and your equity. So different developers have a different need, let's say for, for, for levels of debt and equity. Some guys want... 90% loan to cost. Some guys want 70% loan to cost and maybe non-recourse. All right, that's a hey, lot of you, can, right there. Let's, yeah, yeah, let's break that can we down. we break some
1: of that stuff down? <laughs> Even further, more basic. So we, we try and shy away from debt brokers as a term. We consider ourselves capital markets advisors for a few reasons, a lot of which Brian hit on there. It's really consultative. It's not just, hey, go find me a loan for a million dollars at 2% which is actually a high rate in this day and age. It's more understanding their whole need and consulting with them and working with them to get the best option possible. So we're not just brokering the deal, we're helping consult and arrange the financing, which which often includes um, an equity component as well. So you'll
0: raise, you know, if somebody wants to go into a project and they don't have the capital to put up themselves uh, as more of like a general partner, you can arrange for essentially what would be 100% financing? Or is that not a fair statement there?
1: We've done 100 before. It's not the norm. Generally, whoever is lining up the deal, call it the developer or the sponsor, is going to have at least 2 to 3% of the total projects in the deal. If you want to slice into debt and equity, we can generally get anywhere from 80 to 90% of the cost from debt, and then 75 uh, to 90% of the remainder which could be as little as like one and a half, two 2% of the total projects. But usually okay. the, the bank wants some kind of skin in the game through the co-investors.
3: That's where I was going to go next is like, typically when I talk to a bank, first thing they want to see is like what's under the hood in my personal financials. If you're going to them with someone who, who may not have much in the way of resources and um, is borrowing all of the equity from limited partners that you're bringing in or other equity sources, does that ever cause concern with your primary lenders?
1: It does. You really have to have a very good deal at that point if the sponsor lacks experience and financial backing. Those tend to be smaller deals done with a community bank or a credit union. And we we have done those before with um, with folks that you, you guys know. Makes sense. It tends to be the
3: circles, circles that we hang out with. A lot more. Yeah. That's interesting. You guys have carved out a great niche though. Like um, I feel like There's obviously the JLLs of the world, and I know you guys play in some of that same space, but you'll also get involved in the five, seven, nine-unit buildings, and that's not an uncommon phone call for you to field, am I correct?
1: Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, call it green fields in the under, call it 10, 15 million space that the larger national brokers um, don't look at as much. It's kind of a different subset of banks that would primarily do those kinds of deals, you know, if you walk in with a five million dollar deal to big regional, they're not going to care all that much about it. But some of the local banks really are incentivized to do that type of lending. So yeah, we we kind of work with the small, medium, and large banks across the region.
2: And I I would even add there that even in house we have different expertise. Doug came from a few of the larger regional banks, so he's very good at institutional grade loans where I wouldn't be. I cut my teeth on kind of higher leverage construction lending. So like you're saying, those two to seven unit buildings, single family specs in, in, in the burbs, that type of stuff would be more my wheelhouse. And if I got a deal that's institutional grades, 10, 15 million non-recourse, bring Doug in, he knows that inside out.
0: Excellent. Yeah, let's just hit a couple of those terms. So we are saying loan to cost. I think everybody should be familiar with loan to value. Loan to cost is just the value of the loan relative to the overall cost, not necessarily what it's worth. And so what is a typical, like, where's your break? Uh, Where's the point where you basically say, okay, we can't do something past that. Is it like 90%, 80%,
1: 70%? Generally, um, you get into no man's land around 85%. That said, we've done over a hundred select deals usually because there's gonna be something to increase the value or they bought it right. One thing that we do that I don't think a lot of other debt brokers slash capital markets advisors do is finance land pre entitlement And any guys that have developed land before know that the same piece of land of permits on it is worth a lot more than before it had permits. So if that's imminent, we've been able to kind of break, break that sound barrier of loan to cost. Again, it's rare. I would not buy someone that it's extremely likely if they came to me saying, Hey, this thing's gonna have permits in four months. Can I buy it with negative money down? I would say, Let's talk it over over a few beers, but probably not. (laughs) But but, you know, I'll give it the old college try.
0: (laughs) Awesome. And then, and then you mentioned recourse, non recourse. So, just for our listeners, uh, you know, recourse is uh, debt that a lender can basically come after you personally for you're liable for, right? And non-recourse would be the opposite of that. And and typically, folks like ourselves, we're not gonna be seeing non-recourse debt. We're not gonna be getting loans from lenders and they're saying, oh yeah, sure, you don't have to put up a personal guarantee. Don't worry about it. It's usually when it's a much larger type asset, one that even if you as a borrower defaulted on, the lender could take it over and still get their, their investment back. Is that
1: fair or am I misrepresenting that? Most of it is correct. It doesn't necessarily need to be big and it doesn't necessarily need to be low risk. So I'll talk about smaller ones first. There's some banks out there that would rather just do like 50 and 60 LTV deals, even if they're one in two million, and not bother collecting your guarantee. And then there's another subset of private lenders, which tend to do riskier deals and larger deals, but they do them non recourse as well. Unlike a bank, those lenders would be happy to own the real estate. And they're not going to go after you personally, but they do charge a bit more than a bank. So this is like a whole, I don't want to say unregulated, but lightly regulated universe of lenders that uh, they're not funded with deposits. And that's why they fall under a different set of rules. But a lot of them will do much higher risk deals, non-recourse. They would be in the loan to own category.
3: What's interesting too on non-recourse is there's different flavors, right? So You can have non-recourse with a completion guarantee, which is a very specific thing. And then my other favorite real estate term is the bad boy carve-out,
1: which relates to recourse and non-recourse. So can you touch on both of those? So the completion guarantee, in essence, says that while it's under construction, you need to complete it or or the lender can go after you personally. The bad boy is something that has expanded since I started doing this in 07 to the point where. Almost everything kind of falls under bad boy, and if you do anything that's even in a bit nefarious, the bank and their attorneys could probably find a way to pierce that non-recourse. Like it includes fraud, misrepresentation, misappropriation of funds. If you look hard enough, you could probably imply that something was fraudulent. For example, filling out a PFS and you just give it around hundred thousand of cash. If you had ninety five thousand or one hundred five thousand, you could argue. And I'm no attorney, and everyone, this is the point at which I say, check all this with your attorney first. They could argue that you misrepresented your PFS on that date when you signed it. You didn't have exactly 100,000, even in cash. It's an extremely rare thing. I've never actually seen it in my experience. I've heard about it in the very old days before I started doing this. It's something to be aware of when you're signing just a bad boy car vote. That's interesting.
3: Yeah. And so the completion guarantee, again, is where the bank is kind of they're willing to accept maybe the market risk. They're saying that like if the condos sell for this or they don't, as long as you deliver a certificate of occupancy and you can complete construction, at that point, you know, I'll leave alone your firstborn child in your house.
1: They'll <laughs> so basically convert it from full recourse to the standard carve-outs at that point. But once you, it's-
3: yeah, but you own the risk during construction if there's some massive change order and you get stuck uh, halfway through construction with no cash left to finish. Then you're still on the hook. So. Yep.
1: I think yeah. it's helpful okay. too to know like why banks set up their deals in such ways. I mean, you know, the recourse sounds like these banks are big and evil and they're coming after you. But at the end of the day, they're a business too, and they lend money at a what would be looked at as a pretty low rate relative to risk. So as a result, you know, they get paid first. They're at the at the bottom of the capital stack. They get right. security in the land with a mortgage. And the guarantee is additional security beyond the land. Three and 4% loans, um, one big loss can really cost them a lot of money. So it's not arbitrary why the rules are kind of set up this way and why the market is formed in such a way. Their best case scenario is getting paid back in full on time, which gets them a 4%, 5% annual return. Whereas the developer usually has, you've seen some deals where you go 2x, 3x your money. So it's really kind of the risk reward. Being traded off, so that's why it's done that way, and it's been formed over time.
4: How often are lenders making you do interest reserves these days?
1: Oh, that's tricky. Any construction loan is going to have one.
2: If you've got if you've got strong global cash flow, whether that's from real estate or a business, you can argue against it and and pay monthly. But then even we try and negotiate the interest reserve, so you know never to fall below this threshold. But it doesn't have to be the you know the absolute amount to cover it for the full two years. That's a negotiable point.
4: And for people that don't know what an interest reserve is,
1: yeah, in so the that's simplest form, cash okay, in the okay. bank to pay your payments while there's no cash getting thrown off by the property. So if you're if you're building something over eighteen months, at least eighteen months till you get any rent coming in, <laughs> you're gonna say something, Brian?
2: No, and I was just gonna I was gonna add there that sometimes it can cover a delta versus a vacancy. So, if you know mid COVID, if it's taking a while to lease up, you might, you know, have to cover that small delta. So, you know, your your mortgage payments are a hundred thousand, your rent is seventy five. So, you know, you have to cover that twenty five thousand for six months. So, it doesn't always a, a absolute black or white scenario. Yeah, that's actually a great point.
1: I'm working on one right now down in Miami. It's a short term rental converting from long term to short term. They went long term during COVID because nobody was traveling, but the revenue per door is like four x as a short term. So while they roll it off, they're going to take like a six month reserve. And usually, any any of that that is unused at the end, you can get back. So it is your money. It's just like another form of additional collateral for a deal that has light cash flow or no cash flow.
4: So it seems so. like you're do, you're lending across the country from what you just said. So you you're not specific to Massachusetts.
1: We actually have two offices. We opened a second one in Miami very recently, but 90% of what we do to this point is in um, Metro Boston within two hours of the city. We do a bit in Northern Rhode Island, um, Southern Maine, Southern New Hampshire, quite a bit on Nantucket, actually. No banks out there, really. Banks do lend out there, but it takes a very small amount where they're kind of over allocated and they'll drop out of that market and then new ones come in. But yeah, the vast majority of what we do is in Metro Boston, but um second office is pretty exciting as well. That is cool. It seems like a lot of so businesses I've, have been moving from we've been hearing, you
0: know, in the news, New York to Miami. It, it, Florida, is Florida gonna be the new uh
1: financial uh, hub soon, you think? My prediction is that especially the the C-suite exec types will have a second home down there and maybe live 181 days down there. For taxpayers, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. I don't know if everyone is going to go um, year time or year round full time. We've seen these booming bus cycles before, but it's it's a great American city with a lot of international capital, and I, I do think some people will end up sticking down there. Other than like the main like glass condos like right on the water, it's a lot cheaper than New York, and again the taxes are much lower. Yeah, now, I, I heard I like Puerto, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico could be nice until I it gets get blown, blown away or just, just yeah, completely I mean, flooded. They're still reeling from the hurricane. Like, what, how long ago is that now? Two years, two years? Yeah, it was um, bad. Yeah. yeah, I'm not I sure EverSource
3: has been back restore. To, to restore their power yet. EverSource. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but hey, I want to go back to the concept of interest reserves because I think it leads to, to, uh, to an interesting conversation about all the various levers that you can pull and how what you guys do is very nuanced. I come from a commercial construction background uh, with a lot of pre-construction estimating and I would create, it's called leveling sheets, seven plumbers bid a job. This guy left out the uh, plumbing fixtures. This guy has all the plumbing fixtures. He doesn't have the water heaters. I can plug and play and adjust everyone's bid and then present to my client. This is the best plumbing number. It's clear as day. When you take into account the ad for the water heaters, he had this. This is a great price. You should purchase your plumbing from American Standard Plumbing and Heating. But what you guys do is is it doesn't always pencil out the same way because there's so many different factors. Interest reserves. Do you need to put all that cash out of your pocket and into theirs at the very start of the job, or will they forego that and let you just fund the interest monthly as you go? What what are some other in, uh, levers, Brian, that you guys look at? Some things that can swing a deal one way or the other that can't quite be quantified on a scope sheet?
2: Yeah, like I think, you know, everyone asks you about rate, like what's the best rate? What rate can you get? But in reality, that's one facet or, or, or one, one, one prong of the fork. Other levers on a condo deal is fees. Are the fees front end? Are the fees back end? Or are there no fees? Back end, uh, please back end. You know, and 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 at the end of the day, if that's back end, that makes a big difference to you guys because yeah, your end buyer is paying them, not not you. You know what else you got? You got you got LTV. So appraisal risk. Someone might do a condo deal and they might put in great term sheet, but they want to be at sixty five percent LTV. Then you've got a bit of appraisal risk versus someone else who's seventy five. Interest reserve, you know, maybe it's funded with your cash out of pocket. Maybe it's funded by the bank and gets drawn down like any other line item. So, so you're paying, it paying
0: interest on your interest.
2: <laughs> well, not necessarily. You can oh. have it. You can you can have it in the loan and it gets drawn down like you know you draw down your kitchen. So you draw down hmm. x amount of interest every month. So it doesn't have right. to be in the bank account. That's kind of a pet peeve of mine where they're charging you interest on 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 interest, but. You know, there's no reason why it shouldn't be drawn down like any other line item. And there's other things like uh, on the hold side. There's things like earnouts
4: uh, as well that that we have been had experience with as well. So
2: yeah, on the permanent yeah, financing, yeah, you're talking debt service coverage ratio, earnouts. What's an earnout? So you know, if you hit a certain threshold based on your net operating income on your tax returns. Or an appraisal if, if if a new appraisal comes in at a higher value than the initially underwrote, then there's a cash out release at, at a later point. So you might close on it now and you've got an earnout baked in maybe 12, 18 months down the line. So you don't have to refinance it. You can close at today's rates. Hmm. But you know, you've got, you know, you've got cash coming down the pike. Now, how does an earnout is that
0: part of like a everybody talks about the burr strategy? So the buy, repair, refinance, repeat, or whatever it stands for. Is that similar to that? It's only one closing, right? So that's the that's the beauty of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. One closing, you got an earn out, and um, yeah, it saves you going back to the well for a, a cashier refinance.
1: Do you, I mean, I I mean so letters will write in there though, is um, subject to their sole discretion. So it gives you a roadmap. You look to drive down the. Most of the time, the banks will honor it, even though it's it says in the docs, sole discretion. If you have a really good attorney, maybe they could get, get that negotiated out. But um, all these different levers and features, kind of the backdrop to all of it is the human element. It's there in real estate and it's there in the financing of it. At the end of the day, the banker and the developer and us, the intermediary, you know, we're all people. And kind of the more you get to know each other and develop some rapport and a long track record with them, the better off your overall numerical and written down terms will come out. So we've worked with some of our banks for over 10 years now. They trust us as like an extension of their sales arm and we bring them a nice, clean, packaged, ready to go vetted deal. So that's the value we bring to the banks and to to, the, to our clients, to the borrowers. They might be on their third deal or their fifth deal or they're on their hundredth deal all with the same three banks and they're tapped out with those three. They can leverage our 10 and 15, in some cases, years experience with these lenders to kind of connect the human element. So. Yes, the dollars and cents and numbers matter, but to the ex- to, to the extent you form a good team um, between the lender, the sponsor, the attorneys, the architect, whoever else, you're going to get an overall better result if you look at it that way as well. So it's not just term sheets. In some cases, we've advised our clients to take a higher rate with lower proceeds because we know that they have a quarter million deposit up and they just have to close. And I say, look, this These terms are great. I've done two closings with this bank, and they're pretty good. This one, I've done two dozen. They will close. They're a little more expensive, but you'll sleep easy knowing you're closing and protecting your deposit. By Mm -hmm. the way, this project has a 28% profit margin, so the extra quarter is fair for the bank. They're going to close. So That peace of mind is everything. Our advice to to take this one because they'll, they'll honor what they say.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're talking to two guys here. Ray and Dan can speak to it, but they've been sort of left at the altar, uh, you know, the day before, <laughs> and it is. It's a, that's my nightmare. Is like you've done all this work, you're ready to go, and your partner's not there with you. So
0: you mean uh, you mean getting a um, commitment, but then it's got a yeah list just, of subject twos. I, I,
3: I won't name the bank. So it's not really
0: no no. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, just saying like a commitment letter is only as good as the subject twos written on it, essentially. And right.
3: So you the CEO of the bank calls you and says that they're not lending anymore because they just they've hit their limit or something. And they, you're just wait, what? We've been talking for six months. We've been dating. What? Are you kidding? <laughs>
4: dating three days before we're supposed to close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some other three things days. that are
0: important too. Three are, days. Um. Yeah, it was Crazy. three days. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on that. <laughs> <laughs> some other things that are important as well. In addition to the terms, not just the rate, but you know, is there a floor? Is there a maximum amount that it can adjust? You know, what's the term? If it's a long term hold what is the amortizations of that that note because we've done some deals where we've typically seen 25 year I think that's the lowest we've gone. we had a couple that were amortizing over 30 years uh, and we've been working with another lender who's given us 35 years. and I mean when you're talking about a buy and hold property, cash flow is important at least at this stage for some of them. so we don't necessarily care about you know I see a lot of videos, Oh, the equity, you know, when you're paying down your debt, you're also building the equity back in the building. Well, that's if the building doesn't decrease in value for some reason. So I don't really count that as extra money. I don't get to see it. I don't get it back from the lender. Sorry, small tangent there. But prepayment penalties in case you need to refi and uh, adjustable rates and any caps and limits there. Those are important too. Not sure if you guys have thoughts on on all that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a full chapter on each one. The amortization. I would disagree that the pay down doesn't have any value because if you're doing the BRRR and you keep doing it, the more you pay it down, it's almost like like an automatic savings account. So if you're on a 25 versus a 30, you're gonna have a bit more savings in five years when you refi. But point taken, the cash now can be levered and reinvested. I'd say, you know, probably 80 to 90 percent of our clients, they would prefer to have a longer am with more cash flow now versus the amortization. The prepays. um, Yeah. So the waterfalls there and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. You got the traditional step down, um, 54321 or 3221. Some just do 1110. Can you explain that? that That's going over my head a little bit. Sure. So a 321, simply put, is if you pay off in the first 12 months, you pay the bank an extra 3% of the loan amount. Year two, it's 2%. And year three, it's 1%. So it steps down. And then after three, it would be zero. That's just one example. There's yield maintenance, which I will not attempt to define live here, but it's basically discounting the differential of payments that the bank would have received if you didn't pay off. Those can be very, very onerous. We try to avoid yield maintenance at all costs. See, this is why swaps, we need guys like you. Swaps are kind of the same, except you can get paid by the bank if rates go up and pay them off. Again, that's probably its own podcast.
4: And then exactly. within the prepayment penalty realm or the the step downs or whatever, some prepayment prepayment penalties are only if you refinance with another lender, but some are if you refinance or sell or you know across the board. So that also varies too, correct?
1: Absolutely. It's all negotiable for the most part. Most will let you sell it after like the first year without paying a penalty. They, they mainly want to prevent you from refining with a competitor. Again, in, in their defense, it takes a lot of time to put this together. If you use them as a bridge loan at 3% and you pay off in six months, and they get nothing. It's hard to make a profitable business that way. So there's a why to the to the reason beyond simply just making more money. But you can't get them done at par, no prepays, even at a long-term, very low rate. The lenders that tend to do that have like the very best rates out there. So they're not really worried about the external refi because like we did one at 2.65 for 10 years middle of last year with no no points up front or prepay. But he's probably never refining that at a lower rate. So they took the risk. I have a quick question. Do you recommend
0: if you have a lender currently and you're happy with the rate and everything, well, not necessarily happy with the rate, but say rates change and you think you can get a better rate, will a lender just laugh at you if you say, hey, can we refinance? I know we're on year three of our five-year first leg of the loan. Will they uh, take you seriously on that or just say, like, get out of here?
1: (laughs) That I would say is the human element. I mean, if you have five other loans with them that are big and juicy and you're paying, they might do you the favor. If you're a one-off and they know you're never coming back, then they're going to make you pay it. Bet my last dollar on it. And everywhere in between. If they're looking for additional new business from you actively, then then you have some leverage there to say, you know, I want to pay this one off, but um, in the next year I'll close a new deal with you, provided you're you know close on rate. I've seen that done before. But prepays are definitely like one of the one of the areas where the human element matters the most, I think, because they, they tend to be the most fungible and negotiable.
2: Yeah, one thing to add with the prepay is I think it's always best to negotiate it up front at, at the term sheet level or at the commitment letter level. But if you're in a situation where you're going to sell something or refinance it, and you've got a big prepay, we do add value in that we help our client negotiate it. So you might be prepaying a million dollar loan. Maybe there's a three percent prepay. Maybe they'll waive that if you bring them a new loan. But versus if we're working with you, we might bring them. We might have ten million in commitment letters with them, and we're like, come on, you know, hmm. we're bringing you ten million and replacing replacing this one million. So we, we have done that before where we've kind of cross-leveraged with the banks. But 100%, I do agree that you're better off negotiating the prepay at closing or prior to closing.
3: A good example of the human element, we did a project, a larger project, and we hit some unforeseen uh, at the very outset of the job that sort of set us back. And we had pref equity on the deal. So there's mezzanine debt and preferred equity, and we can get into the, the differences. But um, the, the pref equity guys are like the smartest guys in the room. These are all Ivy League degrees, and they structure these deals in a pretty tight fashion. And included in the contract are these uh, major milestone dates. So they're all these, ma- you know, top the building off, tear the building down, permit issuance. And the second you don't hit one of these major milestones, you know, it's 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 considered an act of default pretty quickly. And they can just take your interest in this project. They take your child. The human element came in because that's what the contract said. They certainly have the right to do it. They didn't want our deal. They knew that we were trying as hard as we could, that we hit circumstances that we couldn't have possibly foreseen, and we've managed it extremely well. And for that reason, we signed an extension, and we pushed the milestones out commensurately, and we hit each subsequent one. Definitely some sleepless nights as we approached that target. And Should we call them about this? Who? But once the conversation came up, it was an awesome relationship. And so, that, Yeah, that's I would say...
1: Thing, Doug both debt and equity sources. So long as you're communicating and there is a bona fide good reason for something going sideways, yeah. almost every time, in my experience, they are willing to work with you. So when you're being dodgy about it, holding some info back, waiting to the mm. last minute to like drop this on them, you know, July 3rd and out of town, that's when you get kind of negative responses. So whether it's a lender or an equity source, like like I said earlier, they're all people too. And it, like they're, I've found over the years, willing to come to the table as long as you're acting fairly and openly and honestly. So, yeah, I've seen plenty of those circumstances where the bank or the equity source got flexible on whatever is written in black and white because A, it was in their best interest, but B, it was also kind of the right thing to do based on the shifting floor under your feet.
3: We had a, uh, an uncharted utility, a Comcast line to be specific, that bifurcated our site that we found upon starting excavation. And it was during the summer Olympics and Comcast just wouldn't cut the line. They're like, yeah, this service is like a hundred thousand people in downtown Boston. We're going to wait until the last medal is awarded
1: and then we'll, we'll come and service this. So everyone was just it's awful. I had a wow. deal with pretty much the same thing. We should offline about it. Yeah, I should have <laughs> cut it. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, um, they didn't know. It
0: wasn't on any chart, right? Yeah. No,
3: but you know, that's a really good point okay, that you Mark. bring up. I'll be quick. Just the idea that you should approach the bank early like if you're leading up to this, the right thing to do isn't to like cross your fingers and hope you just squeak by that date. It might be just to kind of call ahead of time and say like this could be tight. We're doing everything we possibly can at the moment, but I, I hope to not have to call you about this on April 9th but we we may need to talk again and uh, heads up so yeah I think people's people, natural response
1: might be to the contrary. People tend to appreciate the heads up. That's kind of another benefit of us is, you know, we have a whole team of people that it's kind of our job to be that squeaky wheel, whether it's to close the loan or after the fact. So like for the deals where we put equity investors in, we send out like a a quarterly update on the project. Most of them tend to be construction. So it's like, hey, here's where we are. They're into finish work or sellouts have begun, whatever. But it's very rare that they ask us for an update. We're ahead of it, getting the updates before they even ask for it. And then that builds trust right there. Right? They're like, All right, I know I'm going to get something, so I don't get antsy because I'm not hearing from every, you know once per year on a two-year deal. So yeah, communication is key at every level of, of finance, and I, I think in real estate as well.
4: Do fixed-rate mortgages exist on the commercial side?
1: Yes, but they're, they're called variables. I think I know where we're getting out with this. Like You'll have a 30-year and a 10-year term, but it's like two fives or it's like a 10 that then converts to a monthly variable. So yeah, those are technically variable rates, but they are fixed for a a predetermined period of time. So mentally, I think of those as fixed rate deals, even though they can reset at some point in the future. If you're asking, is there um, like a 30-year full-term self-amortizing deal out there? I haven't done one anytime recently. They might exist out there, maybe at some obscure life company.
2: There is the SBA rates,
1: right. That's a good point. Those are twenty and twenty-five year fixed, self-liquidating.
2: The SBA, most developers, it's not in their space, but it's a government-backed program that's for owner-occupied businesses. To um, they can buy real estate with ten percent down. Very very advantageous program. You're getting a twenty-five year fixed rate, probably in the mid to mid to high twos right now very very good program so i've financed maybe four or five of them in 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 the past 12 months i sit on a loan committee for one of the lenders so just to give you examples of businesses we've done there we've done a lot of bars restaurants done a funeral home doing hotels very very good program for owner-occupied businesses kind of underutilized but very worthwhile
0: Have you guys done anything or have any thoughts on like any FHA type products? Because I think I've talked to Dan a couple of times about, I've seen them go up to 40 year amortizations, but they'll have a very steep prepay, you know, potentially as high as like 10% year one, and then it comes off 1% a year. So they don't want you messing around with that. Have you seen anything like those? Or is that kind of outside of the scope of your services?
1: We've seen them, but my experience, and I'm just pulling this number out of nowhere, but over the last 15 years, I'd say the average loan gets paid off after 30 months, maybe less. So most of the folks we're working with tend to be value-add developers in some way, and they want to use that project as a piggy bank at some point in the future. So something like that, I don't think would be appealing. You know, a, a 10-year fix is typically the longest we would do, and hopefully it's like a 3-2-1 type step down. We've done a couple swaps over the last few years. But those are quite hard to get out of. Um, you can pay a, a very large penalty if rates go down and you pay off. So the vast majority of what we're doing is getting churned every you know, two to four years anyway, or it's a development play that has a short term anyway. I don't know many people that would sign like a 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, so on, step down. That is a, truly a marriage. I mean, think of, think of even in, in year six, you're paying four points to get out of a deal. You better be sure that that's the best rate you're going to get, and you're never going to sell it, and you're never going to want to recap that. Nothing's going to change
2: with it, which might require a refi. You're never going to divorce. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're never going to get a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Life happens. You know. Yeah. I mean,
0: from what I've seen, I, I think the benefit there is like they'll do higher loan to values and lower debt coverage ratios and that sort of thing, and and there might be some you know housing restrictions or income restrictions as well. That's just what from what I've seen. I know it's not the norm. We've never, obviously never looked at that. But going back to that amortization thing.
2: We see they work very well in markets where banks where, where it's not very well banked. Boston is very, very competitive on the bank scene. And then with the FHA on a construction loan, a lot of those loan programs, you have to pay the Davis-Bacon prevailing wage. And that just doesn't make sense if you're doing you know market rate housing.
1: Makes sense. The differential of terms, to Brian's point, isn't enough to go through that process. Like a, you could get a, just right now, a cash out to 75 LTV, um, even with the rate increase in the low to mid threes from a, a local bank with a easy to understand 3 one type step down. And the benefit of that too, and why we like it is like generally at these smaller banks, we know the senior lender, sometimes even the CEO. So I, I know I keep going back to the human element, but it's, it's very important. It's good to be able to call someone if something happens. Life gets in the way, and you got to tweak something. So, anytime I can, even if it's perhaps slightly higher rates or whatever, not as good a terms on paper. There's a lot of value in that flexibility and like knowing who you're dealing with. So, obviously, sometimes a loan is too big where it can't be a community bank. So you got to go to a regional or national, and you know, oftentimes we have good relationships there as well. But the whole point is, it's it's not worth an extra you know, 10, 15 bps on savings to not be able to ever pay off or talk to someone, I don't.
3: Doug, what's a typical fee structure on your guys' services look
1: like? They're all pretty much custom negotiated, but um, generally speaking, we would charge a point on debt, two on mezz, and uh, four to five on equity. For larger de- uh, deals, I would tend to scale down a bit. And for really small deals or very difficult deals, I might scale them up a bit. Almost every assignment we take, we work exclusively. Um, you guys have seen our engagement before. It usually lasts 60 to 90 days. Then you can terminate it if we don't get it done. Why that's valuable to us and to the client is you're basically committing to us and we're committing to you. And we know that we are working for you and with you on this deal, kind of in the trenches with you to get it done. It sends better messages to the banks because they know they're talking to someone empowered to negotiate on the client's behalf. and award the deal if they're the best terms. Like New York City, for example, doesn't really have that. So it's kind of just a jungle of term sheets flying around. And each broker probably knows a couple banks really well, or they're like related to the people and get it done. But in Boston and some other markets, the exclusivity is really to the benefit of the client because you're developing um, a consistent approach to marketing the deal. And again, the ability to award it. So the banks like knowing that we're exclusive as well.
0: Yeah, you're kind of pre-underwriting the deal and then knowing if it's going to be palatable for a lender or even a group of lenders, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, these things take time. There's a lot of skill and effort that goes into putting our uh, marketing book together. But again, the, the banks almost always ask, hey, are you exclusive on this? Am I talking to someone that has the ability to say, hey, this is your deal? And when they know that, they'll put their best effort forward too. So it does get the best results. Sure. I
3: love the book every every uh, time we've worked with a, a debt brokerage shop and yet the book, it's exciting. It's always- They're not a debt glossy, brokerage shop, Mark. Beautiful. Oh,
1: yes. I know. <laughs> so Capital markets intermediary. Sorry. Uh, I, it's, a I, lot of, you know, it's a lot of syllables. A lot yeah. of words. broker rolls off the tongue better. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know we admit- met... you know, like It's what we even are called, you know? Yeah.
0: I know we had met and Doug a couple times prior to even working with you, and I think to, you know when Mark had mentioned earlier when you know we had gotten kind of burned by a lender at the final hour there and left at the altar as he said, you know that's when we said, okay, that's enough of this. it's time to it's time to step up our game. It's time to work with a company that will make sure that doesn't happen again and so we've we've got that experience and all of the finishing steps aren't done yet, but will certainly report back when we are done with that first deal that we did together. And we've gotten to that point where it's uh, 100% occupied and, and functioning in financing. So, But the point is that even in the height of, I guess, the height of COVID, because what would we start talking in March or April?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it started uh, right as it was starting. And I think we closed mid-July.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, just being able to get financing when every lender seemed to be taking a very conservative and wait and see approach which a lot of people have now obviously gone back on but hindsight's always 2020 20. Uh, so that was that was excellent so we appreciate that
2: thank you yeah i would i would add covid was a great opportunity for us there was a lot of banks who just sat on their hands and said come back to us in 6 months time one of my biggest deals last year was a 10 million dollar construction loan on blue hill ave the Developer was very, very loyal to one bank in particular. I won't mention who they are. They basically had the loan approved and then they said, eh, Let's wait to see how this pans out. Let's park it for six months. And he's like, I'm about to break ground. What are you going to do? And they're like, like, Come back in six months. And he's like, Okay. So then he called me. And it was, you know, it was a very, very doable deal. Very, very doable deal. And for that bank now to burn a relationship over, you know, let's wait and see. You know, that's kind of where we added a bit of value and ha- how we picked up a few customers last year.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Two offshoots to of that. The banks are not constantly like a static organization that are always doing the same types of deals at the same pricing in the same areas. Like like any investor, if they get overweight one area, they might turn that faucet off and try and lend in other areas. For example, if they just did, you know, a billion dollar bank that just put 50 to work in Southie, they might say, okay, I'm done in Southie for a bit. A developer that's strictly in Southie that relies on that bank might not be able to for that for the time being. So banks come in and out of the market in various ways. We always kind of know who's doing what and where because we have seven people full time. Kind of I was looking at this daily, talking to these banks to know where they stand, and what they're looking for, um, and we'll routinely call some of these banks even if we don't have an active deal and say, Hey, what are you looking for now? What's kind of your sweet spot? So it's basically real time data as to which bank is doing. Uh, Types of deals in this in this region but to brian's point i would not advise anyone to work with just a single bank in case that bank gets bought or has a big loss and just stops lending at the end of the day like most of my clients have very good direct relationships with their banks and um and most of them were arranged through us but not to disparage banks it's just how business is they're going to do what's best for themselves as they should in any business transaction. So even if you have a good relationship, they're just out of capital, or get bought and they can't—they just can't honor their term sheets that they had. Out, that's a big risk. So I'd advise anyone to have multiple avenues to multiple different banks, um, especially if you're going to do many deals at at once. Um, right. Just a, a, a big bank merger was The loan officers at the acquired bank tend to lose a lot of the clout that they had within their old organization at the new at the new one.
3: Mm. Yeah, that happens a lot, acquisitions and roll-ups and such. All right, uh, a common saying or a cliche I've heard before is uh, banks only lend to people who don't need the money. Brian, is that is that true?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good answer, But be honest. It's, it's, yeah. it's smoke and mirrors. Just tell them if they don't think you don't need the money, then that's better. You know, You don't call up a bank and tell them you're broke.
1: <laughs> they, I would characterize it a little differently. They will give stronger borrowers better terms. So the less you need it, the, the more the bank will give up. But again, they're just trading down the risk spectrum. If a guy with a hundred million net worth and 20 liquid in the bank comes to you for a $3 million loan, by definition, you're a lower risk than a guy on, one, on a second deal with 15K in the bank and 120 in student loans. So they're going to charge a little more and it's just the nature of the game, so right, right, right. no different than credit. one answer has a little color to it. <laughs>
3: yeah, I was like, uh, Brian's right to the point. Why don't we? Uh, we're sort of running up on time, but I'd love to do a quick lightning round. If we could continue, I think we kind of started earlier. We'll just throw out some terms. Um, if you could give us a, a maybe just a quick explanation, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll try to run through quick. So I'll kick it off here with um, mezzanine debt.
1: Mezzanine debt is a second position mortgage so what that means is there's a first mortgage generally a bank and this other organization is paid second only after the first bank is paid it's not always a mortgage sometimes it's a pledge of equity in the llc that owns the real estate you're really leading off with a pretty technical one here
3: um, i know i was going to do preferred equity but i thought that was harder uh Ray, what do you got
1: I, that's I, a simple I,
0: definition i feel like uh, we should
2: have okay. investopedia open here just to make sure yeah <laughs>
0: All right, we'll go, we'll go. We'll do a relatively easy one here. Let's do a debt coverage ratio or debt service coverage ratio. I, I don't know why they call them that. They're all the synon they're synonymous. So
2: I'll take the easy one, Doug. Go for it. <laughs> so that's the ratio of your net operating income over <laughs> your debt service, so over your mortgage payments. So and on an annual basis, which is kind of a, key. On an annual basis, so if your property is bringing in a hundred thousand in gross rent, twenty five percent expense ratio. Your net operating income is seventy-five thousand. Your mortgage is fifty thousand. Then your debt service coverage ratio is one point five. One point five.
0: Good. And man. Why is that
2: important? It it just shows that the, it shows the bank that there's some there's some cushion if if a couple of units run vacant if expenses go up. We've seen debt service coverage ratio that, like we talked about earlier. That's one of the levers that you can play with. You know, it goes as low as one to one or one to one point oh five, and it goes as high as you know, if you're doing a 35-year RAM loan, sometimes they want to see 1.3 on that. So it it, it it goes anywhere from 1 to 1.3, but banks really do want to see a nice little cushion there over the net operating income.
1: To kind of get into the non-recourse territory, that discussion usually starts at 1.35. 1.5, if you can consistently show that you've done that for a couple of years, it becomes pretty easy to get um, non-recourse <laughs> You guys
3: are killing my lightning round. Dan. Yeah, we're slowing <laughs> this down. We're just technical yeah. like <laughs> bangers, you know, tropical guys, storm like, round. For the finance <laughs> cap, guys, there's nothing cap, about it.
1: Cap rate. Yeah. <laughs> the cap rate is the net operating income in relation to the value of the property. So take your uh, net operating income in the numerator and the value in the denominator. If I flip that, forgive me, um, and represent that as a percentage term and that's that's the cap rate.
3: Interbank, is this is the last round.
1: Cap rate is more risk.
3: Yeah, more risk.
1: But uh, better return for an investor. Better return to compensate for the, the risk, whether real or perceived. It's kind of in the eye of the beholder. uh. All right,
3: interbank lending agreement.
2: That's when you've got multiple lenders uh, on a loan, mm-hmm. and they obviously have an agreement of the loan.
1: Yeah, you'd see that for like, participation, where let's say it's a $20 million deal. Working with two smaller banks that can't do that, but they both want to do it. They split it for 12 and 8 or 9 and 11 mm-hmm. or 10 and 10 evenly. They would have a written it. agreement between them describing roles and responsibilities. And you would always see that in a mezzanine situation as well. The mezzanine lender, second position, and the senior lender would have a written agreement as to the, um, their relationship.
3: Nice. This reminds me of the time that Dan asked Jeremiah to define cantilever. He's like, ah. Uh, cantilever can i (laughs) find that with its own word Um,
1: like an overhang over a vertical support right yeah no it is but it's just like (laughs) what's an
3: interbank lending agreement uh it's an agreement (laughs) between two banks like uh, i think that's its own thing all right dan ray you got any last ones
0: i'll go with uh we'll go more simple again some seasoning seasoning requirements
1: brian likes seasoning.
2: I feel yeah. like all the other podcasts are more fun. You know, the the whole white uh, on white on white kitchens. These terms are like, you know, I don't want to put people to sleep. But uh, <laughs> so seasoning is, let's say, on a um, on a permanent deal, on a cash flow and deal. They want to see some seasoning of the rents and um, so some stabilization. So a new building coming, coming to market, you know, maybe 12 months seasoning. So 12 months of full occupancy and uh, net operating income.
1: Uh,
2: last one for me, bridge loan
1: bridge loan is any short-term financing where something fundamental to the property is going to change. So you're buying a 40% vacant office building and you're going to put it through um, an investment program. We're going to rent it out to 75, 80%. You're not going to be able to get low rate perm financing in that situation, but you can probably get non-recourse at five and a half to eight, call it, for 18 to maybe 30 months to put your program in place. If you stub your toe and you can't deliver and pay them off at the end, this lender might be happy owning that property with all the work that you've put into it. So it basically bridges the gap between today and what you're going to do to the property in two years, when you'll then qualify for five, seven, 10 year permanent debt at a lower rate.
4: I have one other question. You always do. Ryan, where are you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) This I'm in my scary. unfinished basement. <laughs> oh I... but so I, I, I like you're got... in a plastic bag. No, 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 I, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm not in construction. You guys are in construction. You can tell me what that is. It's breaking breaking <laughs> bad right there. <laughs> and yeah, so like, can, more like uh, Dexter. Uh, I can explain. So I've That's I've Derek got Sir. a I've got a I'm at home, obviously in the home office and is upstairs, but I've got a two-year-old and a seven week old, and I just didn't want any interruptions. So I came oh, down man.
0: here. <laughs> hey congratulations
2: thank you yeah i i'm i hear you all right well, I'm Brian, go, go take... i might just move down here permanently <laughs> yeah. all right well we Good. promise on the next
0: one we'll give you some harder terms so how about that <laughs> yeah i well, like it go
3: take a nap make sure you're sleep deprived <laughs> and uh doug if, if folks wanted to find you if they have a deal they need money how can they get a hold of you for your consulting uh Capital, Capital, Capital Markets Capital. Advisory
1: okay. Services. Um, <laughs> yes. So thank
3: you. Got
1: our website, financeboston.com. All of our employees have our contact info there. So if you want someone with a bit of an Irish brogue, you can get that there. If you want a <laughs> you know, normal American guy from New Hampshire, I'm up there too. We also post um, closing announcements there. Occasionally, we'll put up like an interest rate grid showing like a recent market update and what you can expect for various programs. Sometimes we even write thought pieces, believe it or not. We think about stuff and and write it down and send it out to the world. So yeah, best way to find us is is right there. Awesome.
4: Well, thanks guys.
0: All right. Thanks for having
1: us on. This was great.
4: Thank you very much.
0: All right, everybody. Thanks for sharing, reviewing, liking, all that good stuff. We'll catch you on the next one. Cheers.
4: Cheers.